there are, I, I do have a handout. Uh, what I'm planning on doing, and we'll see how it goes this morning, you're kind of the test case, is I want to give the handout uh, at the end of the session. Reason being is, um, uh, maybe it's just me, but I've noticed when, when there tends to be handouts and you're trying to have a have kind of a uh, conversation, you're going to see people kind of buried with their face in the handout, reading ahead, missing things that are happening, missing things that people are saying. So if you'd like to take notes, I'd encourage you to do that, but don't feel, ne don't feel it's necessary because the handout is going to have all of the relevant information. We're going to look at some diagrams. Those diagrams are going to be on there as well. Um, so my, my goal is for, for us collectively to just engage uh, in, in this material and with each other in a conversation. There's going to be a couple points. We're going to hit the pause button. I'm going to ask for you guys' uh, input, discussions, and, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll enjoy it and have a good time together. So to begin, what I want to say is it's important for us to get our bearings, getting our bearings. So has anyone in here ever had to navigate using one of these things? <laughs> compass, right? So before GPS, if you were kind of out and about, you needed a compass. And one of the things that's interesting about compass is if it's not dialed in, let's say, to where True North is, and you try to use it to get to where you need to get, go, you're not going to end up where you want to be. Right. right? So if you ever had one of those, um, did he, the, the Cracker Jack box, they used to have those toy compasses. Mm -hmm. Like I remember when I was a Cub Scout, we got, like, they weren't really useful or helpful, but I remember going out in the woods and trying to use it, and I ended up, I was like, this, what? I'm not, I'm lost, right? And then it took me about 20 minutes to get back where you need to be. So, but as long as this is oriented in the proper direction, it can be a very useful tool to getting you where you want to go. And so in the same way, there's a couple foundational or key truths with respect to God and his purposes that we have to understand. Because if we don't understand them, then when things happen in life or we see things occurring, we're going to be very confused because we're going to feel like God's not kind of doing the things that God said he's going to be doing. And so if we can kind of root ourselves in these truths, they form a true north of sorts. And it enables us to kind of understand uh, and, and, and ask maybe the right questions about God's activity in the world, in the church, and in our own lives with respect to how he's working to bring about his intended purposes, ends, and aims. Make sense? So, to get started, we're going to ask two kind of important or opening questions. And, and these are, why or for what reason did God make the creation? Why did God make anything at all to begin with? And then the second question is, why or for what purpose did Jesus establish the church? So I'm going to use the whiteboard here. And uh, so I'd like for you to share. What are, what are some explanations or reasons that you've been given or you've heard or even you have maybe stated yourself to answer this first question? Why or for what reason did God make the creation? For his glory. Okay. <laughs> glory? Okay, what are some others? He was bored. He was bored. <laughs> Let me do something. I'm, I'm sick of it. He was bored. What are some other reasons? What was that? To show his power. To show his power. Power? To display his power? Created us for worship. Us? Say two or four? Four. Four. Worship. Okay. What are some other reasons? Because it pleased him. It pleased him? You're out. Okay. Do you think of any others? 
Has anyone ever heard somebody give an explanation, for example, that he created the creation to make us so that we could be in relationship with him, or something along those lines, so that we, so that we would love him, so that we could love him? <clears throat> so we'll say, so that we might love, and that could be under worship, but, okay. Are any others that you can think of before we kind of move forward to the next question here? Relationship. Relationship? Okay. You could also say to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. His kingdom? Okay. Any others? You're going to have to drink more coffee before you get here next week. <laughs> All right, second question. Why or for what purpose did Jesus establish the church? What are some explanations or reasons that you've heard uh, maybe for that one? Share his word. Yeah. Okay. So to share his word? To fulfill the Old Testament. Fulfill or prophecy, I guess. Fulfill Old Testament. That's good. We're actually going to come back to that quite a bit over the course of this eight weeks. What are some other reasons? There's no wrong answers. Right? We got up there that God was bored. <laughs> <laughs> something maybe along this lines to to uh, to change for change the world to make a difference things like that okay oftentimes that gets communicated so they have a place for the people to worship so he'd have location whatever. well they already did though mm -hmm. they worshiped in the temple right Pardon the handwriting. All right, so here's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, we're going to look at a couple texts. And then uh, they'll be up here on the screen as well. Um, and, and what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to hit each question, and then we're going to see what the, what the scriptures themselves have to communicate to us in respect to answering these questions. So for the first question, why or for what reason did God make the creation? So we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And then as well, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 as well. So we'll begin with uh, Colossians 1. So Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. This is speaking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all things. Whether on earth 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So if you were to kind of distill some things out of this section of scripture that are really helpful for us in respect to this question, it's by him, so by Jesus, all things were created. All things were created through him and what? For him. He is the head of the body, the church. That's a, that's a declaration of his headship or authority over the church. Um, and then as well, it was through him that, that God was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So that's the visible and invisible, right? Making peace by the blood of the cross. Make sense? So that's Colossians. So the next one is Ephesians. About the same length, right? And so this is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, which is Jesus, in him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So you notice a similarity between some of the language here, uniting all things in heaven and earth, so again, Paul is the author of both of these texts we've looked at, Colossians as well as Ephesians. So if you were to distill some things out of this to help us answer that first question of why did God make anything to begin with? Notice what it says. He's speaking of the church. He chose us, the church, in him, in who, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us, the church, for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through who? Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then on the bottom there, <clears throat> it's talking about how he's making known his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Excuse my throat, I was getting dry there. So, <clears throat> so again, there's some similarities here, a little bit of a difference in this text, though, because the first one we looked at in Colossians says that all things were made by and through and for Christ. And in this text, adds a little bit more information. Before the foundation of the world, he did what? Chose, Chose his church. So before God ever created anything, he had in view a church. For who? For Jesus. And it is Christ himself that all things are made by, for, and through. He holds all things together, and he's over all things as preeminent. You have a question? Yep. Good. So if we were chosen before time, and he knew, knew knows the hairs on our head, the number of hairs, mm -hmm. Were we predestined to be Christians? Yes. 
And that's, that's another extended conversation. But, for example, in here, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the themes, that's one of the things that you will see articulated throughout the scriptures, is that God, and that's one of the things we're going to be talking about, God has a plan. He has had a plan since before the foundation of the world was ever laid. He's not acting, um, how would I call it? He's, he's not acting without purpose. He's not like, there's nothing that has occurred throughout history, nothing that occurs in our lives that God goes, whoa, I didn't see that coming. So if we were to, based on these two texts, and we could look at more, but we'd run out of time. If we were to answer, what does the, what does the scripture say with respect to the, to the first question? Why did God make the creation? To give Christ, his people, his bride, the church. We exist for Jesus. And the whole reason God made anything to begin with was so that there would be a people called the church that would belong to Christ. And that we would be, the, the Bible actually uses this language, that we would be his bride. He would be our bridegroom. And so, for example, if you read in the book of Revelation, a lot of imagery throughout the, throughout the scriptures, for example, um, in the early church, the church fathers used to interpret the book of um, Song of Songs, which is basically a kind of a love poem between a husband and his beloved or his betrothed. And the church fathers, and I think rightly, read that as, as an analogy or an allegory so to speak, of, of how Christ loves his church, his bride. And so the imagery that the Bible presents oftentimes, even of God, is God is a husband to his people. And so the, the, the existence of all things was for the purpose of creating and bringing forth the church that would be given to Jesus at the end of the age of the consummation of all things as his bride, and that we would be with him, that we would reign and rule over the creation with him. So, why did God make anything? So that the church would be birthed and that the church would be presented and given to Christ as a gift or as his bride. So why or for what purpose then did Jesus establish the church? I mean, obviously that was God's plan to begin with. That's why he made anything to begin with. So why, why did Jesus, in, in doing this, does, does the church have a role or a purpose? Now, so we're going to look at, uh, whoa, that was crazy. <laughs> Come on. We kind of saw the answer there. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> All right, so we're going we're gonna to look. Bad control. We're going to look at uh, three texts. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. And Ephesians 3, uh, 7 through 12. So if we start with uh, Matthew 28. Most of you probably heard this before, right? Jesus says, uh, to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So if you were to kind of pull out of this, you'd say, well, why did Jesus establish the church? Why? Well, to go make disciples of all nations or all peoples. We tend to read this word into our modern context, and we think of nation as like a nation state. That's not what the scriptures are speaking of. Nations are different people groups, if that makes any sense. Um, so to go and make disciples of all peoples, of all nations. Next text is Acts 1, related to the one we just saw. So here's Jesus uh, talking to the disciples as well. Right? He says, It is not for you to know times or seasons uh, that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, you're seeing a connected or common theme with Matthew 28. We are to be his witnesses. Where? <coughs> Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the earth. And this is a way of basically saying, hey, we're in Jerusalem right now, and you're going to go to Judea, Samaria. So there's like this expansive, all-encompassing, if you want to say, vision that Jesus had with respect to what the gospel uh, or, or, or his witnesses were to, to accomplish with, with regard to telling others about himself. And then last one is Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 12. And this is Paul. So this is more, um, more immediately what I would say, kind of an autobiographical explanation, but there's some things in here that I think are helpful. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Uh, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, so here's this word plan again, right, of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through, this, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So if you were to pull out some things here, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, and this is, this is an interesting way of phrasing this, right? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So if you remember earlier, I think it was actually from Ephesians, saw the same thing in Colossians, things visible and invisible, things in heaven and on earth. And so the church is displaying God's plan hidden in ages, the mystery of his plan, right? And to reveal his wisdom and to, to demonstrate his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, you notice the language there, but what is the purpose of the church? We're to go make disciples. We're to be his witnesses. And the church, in its very existence here and now, is displaying, making known God's eternal plan and purposes and putting on display his, uh, the manifold wisdom so that both those on earth and those in heaven would understand who God is and, and who we are as the church. So if we were to kind of summarize why or for what purpose did Jesus establish the church to be his witness and to make disciples? To be his witness and to make disciples. Now, we're going to be coming back around to the question of the purpose of the church here towards the end of our study. And we're going to look at a really, I think, important section in the book of Acts that will kind of help us to see how this is really at play in the way God is at work in history and in the church and in the lives of his people. But before we do that, I want to, I want to, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And, and I want to talk about how it's important that we begin with the why, which is kind of what we're doing. We've opened with two questions to kind of, okay, why did God do anything to begin with in terms of making the creation? And why did Jesus establish the church? When we begin with the why, that enables us to kind of get the proper, um, to the proper what. I gotta erase all this. Because a lot of times, if we start trying to answer, let's say the question of what should we be doing, and we don't really understand the, the, the question of why, and we haven't answered that question, 
We're going to find ourselves doing all sorts of things that may not even be connected to what our ultimate purpose is as the church. Does that make sense? So here's a diagram. Um, again, this will be in your notes. But one of the ways of thinking about this, and, and, and I'm going to explain this, is you have what we call gospel identity mission. And the way, the way this works is so that if you want to say, what's the why? This is our why, the gospel. Now, and by gospel, and we're going to be defining this throughout the course of the study, there's a lot of different ways that word can be defined, but if you want to think of gospel as not just the, the, the specific message about Christ, but also the revelation of God's eternal purposes and plans with respect to creation and the church, all that kind of is encompassed under this, this idea of the gospel. So you have the gospel, and then you have over here what we call identity. So when we talk about the gospel, what we mean to talk about there is understanding what God has done, how he's at work, what his plans and purposes are. And then identity comes up with the question of, given in, in light of what God has done for us, what he's accomplished for us in Christ, who now are we as the church? Does that make sense? So a lot of times we don't even understand the gospel and we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing and who we are, but we can't know who we are. We can't know what we're supposed to be doing unless we understand what is God's intent intent and purpose for the church and for his people. And then lastly, we would have mission. Now, I'm going to circle this one first. We already kind of touched on this. We always want to start here, right? And, and what I mean by that is we always want to talk about what should I be doing? And so we always start talking here. What, what should we be doing as the church, right? What should we be doing? But we don't understand what God has done. We don't understand what God's plans and purposes are, right? And we're over here talking about what we should be doing, and we don't even really understand who we're supposed to be or who we are, our identity in Christ. But you can't understand who we are, who God has created us to be, and who he's working in us to become through the Spirit, unless we understand, first and foremost, what God has done and what his plans and purposes are. Does this make sense? And so... As the church, it's important that we understand this. And once we understand not only who God is and what, but what he's done for us, that leads to an appropriate understanding of who we are, our identity. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to say that I've been adopted? What does it mean to say that I'm now um, made one with Christ, or I'm, I'm, I'm being brought together in relationship with God, unified or, or united to Christ, in union with him? And once we then understand properly who we are, our identity in Christ, then and only then can we begin to talk about what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? See how it feeds in. Very often, we're over here talking about this with faulty assumptions about what God is doing. And then when things happen in life, and we're going to see this in the book of Acts, when things happen or they don't go the way that we would anticipate or expect, we get angry with God thinking that he's now, let's say, dropped the ball. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's, he's reneged on his promises. But if we have all these things properly in place, then it creates a certain synergy. And what I mean is if you understand the gospel, you understand what God's purposes are for your life, you understand who God has called you to be and made you to be as, the, as a member of the church, and in light of that understanding and by the Spirit, and by, by empowered by the Spirit, you're actually doing the things that God calls you and us to do collectively as the church, 
then that leads actually to even deeper understandings and appreciation of who God is. And there's this kind of growing cycle that begins to occur in individually and collectively in our life as the church. And so we might say that um, when we're seeking to kind of answer these questions about what does it mean to be the church and what are we supposed to be doing, we have to begin here. And so the, the, the goal of this course is going to be seeking to kind of answer these questions. Not answer these questions, but to lay this out. So here is a breakdown of the coming class. So right now we're obviously introduction. And, uh, and also over here. So we're offering a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening option. The Sunday mornings are going to run for eight weeks uh, straight, an hour each morning. But then over here we have PM, a PM uh, option. So if you miss it or you, you don't like getting up early, um, and those going to be on, and this will be in your note, the handout as well. So on the 25th, the 10-9, the 10-23, and then 11-13, we're going to offer two-hour courses. We're going to cover two sessions during those courses and work through basically the same material. But it'll be a little bit longer time together. Um, or just come each Sunday morning. And then the way the course is going to break down is so next Sunday we're going to be talking about the centrality of the gospel. And what we mean by that is the gospel was not plan B. God wasn't calling an audible. Like it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world that the church would be established. Like this has always been God's plan. And so we're going to see how that is uh, laid out, not just in the New Testament, but throughout the Old Testament as well. And that there's a, there's, a, there's a connectivity and a linkage between what God has declared he's about in the Old Testament. And you see that coming to its fruition and fulfillment as God's mystery, the plan of God's mystery or the mystery of God's plan is being made known explicitly and clearly in Christ Jesus. The next one is going to be understanding the gospel. And so there we're going, to, we're going to take some time to clearly define the gospel. And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the gospel as a story, as God's unfolding story throughout history. And then we're going to also look at the gospel as a truth that's proclaimed, specifically as it relates to Christ. And how, how is Jesus and, and God at work through the Spirit currently in and through the church bringing about redemption, restoration in the lives of individuals and peoples to create the church? And then... Coming off of an understanding of the gospel, we're going to talk about our new identity in Christ. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be the church? What are the things that God is seeking to form in us as his people? What does it mean to say that we're adopted? That we've been, that we had an old life and an old way, and now that is in the past, and we're now being brought into something new. We're, we've been restored or renewed and given new life in Christ. What does it mean to be a, uh, for example, I always use this phrase, a family a family of missionary servants living for the glory of God. And then after we talk about our identity in Christ, we're going to shift focus. And, and then the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about things more relative to spiritual growth. So how do we rest in Christ? One of the, one of the key things, I think, one of the key struggles for, uh, for Christians and for anyone is to truly understand the sufficiency of the grace that has been provided to us in and through the life, death, resurrection, and eventual return of Christ. And that all things necessary for our spiritual well-being and growth have been provided for us in Christ. And we're called to ultimately rest in Christ. So again, this is where, um, if, you, if you think of it in terms of uh, the, what are we, the question of what is it we're supposed to be doing. We oftentimes are so focused on what do I need to be doing where we haven't fully appreciated and understand the, that we're, when we live our lives as Christians, we're starting from a place of rest, a, a place of sufficiency. 
that all things necessary have been provided. And, 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 and so we're going to go from there to then shifting and talking about learning to walk in Christ. And there we're going to discuss the, let's say, the realities of um, rebellion, but discussing rebellion as not, not as simple as oftentimes we think of it, because there's what I'd call uh, irreligious rebellion, which we're commonly, which I'll be typically think of it, but there's also a way of rebelling in very religious ways, where we're oftentimes more focused on what we're doing and how we're doing and how we're living, etc., thinking that those things somehow earn us something with respect to God's appreciation for us. And then lastly, we're going to close out. So this will be, these three weeks will be more focused, let's say, on the individual. And then the last two, we're going to kind of broaden it back out and talk about the, the, the church as a whole. And so joining Jesus on his mission to make disciples, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be the church collectively working together to accomplish that. And then we're going to tie kind of some of the things we learn in week six into week eight, when we say laboring together for the glory of God, so as an extension of the, the preceding week there of joining Jesus on his mission of making disciples, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how, uh, if you want to say, common ways that we as the church get off mission. Um, and we're going to discuss how we do that by basically inverting it, and instead of us existing to fulfill God's purposes through the church, we begin to view the church as existing to fulfill my purposes. It's a place for me to use my gifts. It's a place for me to get my needs met. And we invert it. Whereas the church is meant to be a place where we come and our gifts belong to the church for the benefit and good of the church, for the fulfillment of God's purposes and plans. I mean, we're going to talk about how idols and various other things kind of creep in and, and lead us to kind of think incorrectly and then drift off mission with respect to the church. So, make sense? So again, this is just an overview to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, but we're going we're gonna to close out here looking at a, at a study in, in the book of Acts, looking at just really a few chapters that I think is going to really help highlight um, and, and put some, let's say, uh, flesh on some of these concepts, concepts that we've kind of laid out here. So the problem of making Acts 2 the final act. How many of you are familiar with uh, Acts 2? you know what's in that section of scripture? Anybody? If you do, go ahead and say it out. You don't have to raise your hand. What's there? Pentecost. So the Spirit comes out. Here. If somebody has a Bible, if you could read, uh, and we're going we're gonna to come back to it, if you could read Acts 2, verses 43 through 47. to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God 
and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So isn't that such a, an amazing picture of the church? You get this beautiful picture of a, of a, of a community that's healthy and is thriving. Um, it says they're devoting themselves to the teaching, they're breaking bread, they're sharing meals with one another, is that there's a sense of awe and reverence that's come over the whole church, right? Um, and and there, there's a generosity that, that, that's taking place. That, that, that no, one with any, no one is going without. Anyone who has a need, it, that those needs are being met because other people within the church with the means are selling possessions and property and bringing the proceeds so that uh, those who are impoverished or are struggling are in need that their needs can be met. And not only that, they're also enjoying, what does it say? Verse 47, having favor with all the people. So they've got a great reputation in the community. Everybody thinks highly of them. They're respected. And not only that, it's a growing church. Day by day, it says God is adding to, to, to the number of those who belong to this church. And so it's a, an amazing picture of the church. Now, how many of you would say, I want to be a part of a church like that? Right? We all would. Like, yeah, I want, I want that experience. I want to I be a part of a church like that. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So we already looked at Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. And this is the one where Jesus says, hey, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right? So those are his marching orders. And then they begin. Now they're still in Jerusalem. And so this church is in Jerusalem. And the Spirit pours out. God does, starts doing these amazing things. And they have this incredible, beautiful experience of what it feels like to be a part of a thriving church. And we read that and we go, man, I want this experience. I want this experience. I, I yearn for this sort of experience. But here's what, hap here's what happens. What we do is we kind of plant our flag there. We say, well, this is what we're striving for. This is what we want to experience. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I want. What we fail to realize is the story of Acts actually goes on, doesn't it? So we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So if you will, flip with me um, to Acts chapter 7. I'm going to skim through, eventually landing uh, there in the, in the beginning of chapter 8. So I'm kind of give a summary because this is a pretty pretty long chapter. But a man named Stephen, who had um, who was selected uh, to become a deacon in the church in the Book of Acts, he was well respected, well regarded. He had a had a um, an exceeding and growing reputation as as a person who was righteous before God. Let's say, and 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 so there's some events that occur, and he he delivers a speech. And at the end of this speech, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. If you go to verse 54, verse 54 in chapter 7. So those whom he's talking to, I'm going I'm to jump up and read a little bit. He actually rebukes them. He rebukes them for their hardness of heart. He rebukes them for rejecting Christ. He rebukes them for rejecting the gospel. And he, he kind of closes this message out in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he obviously wasn't trying to ingratiate himself and make friends with this message. And they got that point. But here's what's interesting. Instead of 
repenting, instead of receiving the gospel and falling in repentance, what do they do? They harden their hearts, and the anger is now directed at Stephen. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears, plugged their ears up, right, and rushed together at him. When they cast him out of the city and, uh, I'm sorry, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. So he gives a sermon. The people who hear it, instead of allowing that conviction to lead them to a place of repentance and confession of faith, they harden their hearts. They direct their rage and anger at Stephen. They drag him out of the city, and then they stone him to death. Now, mentions a man named Saul, who also is known as Paul, who wrote, actually, the two, two or three of the texts we looked at today. He figures prominently in the book of Acts. And at this point in time, Saul is a persecutor of the church. So now, look back at uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of, the, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in where? Jerusalem, this beautiful picture of community. And it says they were all what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then we're told that devout men buried Stephen and made great limitation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 4 says, now those who were scattered, we're going we're to stop at verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So now here's what's interesting. You have Jesus declaring it at the opening of the book of Acts. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they start off on this mission. Now, now, mind you, they're still in Jerusalem. When we get to Acts chapter 2, the Spirit pours out. You have this incredible picture of a flourishing, healthy, vibrant, living church. There's generosity. There's devotion to the teachings that the apostles are giving. There's a commitment to one another in love. They're selling off possessions and property so that all needs are met. They have respect in the community. Everybody esteems them and recognizes them to be godly, honorable people who actually care about others. And not, their numbers are growing day by day. And then the story goes on, and we get to chapter 7 with Stephen. He delivers a sermon, which ultimately leads to his death by stoning. And then persecution breaks out on the whole church in Jerusalem, and we're told that the church in Jerusalem is what? Scattered. 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 So now... What do the events in Acts 7 and 8 and the persecution that scatters the church 
reveal about the purposes God most values regarding the church? It's an important question to ask. Because we want to plant our flag in Acts 2, and we want to say, this is what God values most. A thriving, growing, healthy church where everyone's being cared for, and it's comfortable, and I'm, I'm down for that. I want to be a part of that, where we're respected in the community, and we're growing day by day. But here's the thing, if God is sovereign and, he's provident, and, and his providence is working throughout history, which it is, then this occurrence in Acts chapter 7 and 8 didn't come about by some kind of accident. It was in God's plan that this persecution would break out and that, the, that this beautiful picture of a church in Acts 2 would be what? Broken up and scattered. Why? To preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. To preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're told that. It says, and those who were scattered went about what? Proclaiming, Proclaiming. preaching the word. Now here's the other question, and I, and I think it's, it's relevant to ask this. If you're a part of a church like this, do you really think you're going to want to leave it and go somewhere where you're going to face hardship and maybe alienation? Probably not. We tend to like what? Comfort. We tend to like things that benefit us. We tend to like people who like us. We like people who like us. <laughs> now, here's the thing. This is the important question to ask. If this is what God allowed or caused to happen, what does that tell us about what God values most in terms of his purposes and plans for the church? Do you think God has a higher priority on your comfort? No. Or the proclamation of the gospel? Yes, yes. So do, you think God do you think God values your experience of community? Or that the ends of the earth would hear about Jesus Christ? The ends of the, the, ends earth. Of the earth. The ends of the earth. Yeah. Yes. Doesn't the church grow better when it's being persecuted? Throughout history, that's often very true. You know. So now here, here's where things, and we're gonna, again, we're going to circle back around to this idea in the last week. And this is why I wanted to use this text as a good jumping point, because here in the United States, we like comfort. We like ease. We like air conditioning, and we like our bellies full, and we like people to like us, and we like things to go our well. We want a comfortable, relatively, not saying easy, but comfortable life. And, and we tend to view the church through that lens as well. The church exists to meet my needs. What do I want? How's this going to serve me? How can, I, how can I manifest myself in such a way that people esteem me? You need to realize something. Listen, the church is not about you or me or us. It's about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. From before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan and purpose to establish the church for his glory and his renown and that we would be presented to Christ as a bride at the end of the ages. Our rest and our comfort is not in this world now. But then, when in, in the glory of the resurrection, we are all united with Christ in the consummation of all things. Right now, that's not why we're here. And we, we often want to make the church about the things that we want it to be about. But what does this text reveal to us with respect to what God's plans and purposes are for the church? Make disciples of all nations. Proclaim my name to the ends of the earth. That makes me uncomfortable, Jesus. I don't know if I want to do that. Okay. Then don't get mad at God when hardship comes your way, though. You see what I'm saying? So we get angry with God because things aren't, aren't coming to us like we think they should. 
And I have to wonder, like, if I was a part of this church and that persecution broke out and all of a sudden it's scattered and all these relationships that I treasured, all these people that I knew, and the sense of community and the sense of comfort and safety that I had is now ripped away from me. And I'm being scattered out among the nations, right? <laughs> You're probably asking the question, like, why would you do this, God? Like, clearly you've, you've forgotten about us, God. But what did Jesus say in the very beginning of Acts 1, 6, 8? What did he tell them? What did he say? This is what you're doing. This is what your purpose is. This is what my purpose as the head of the church is for you. You'll be my witnesses. Here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And hey, guess what? Jesus kept his word, didn't he? They got comfortable, and he made it happen. So do you see how in this, in this section of the book of Acts, we're seeing God following through on his plans that the gospel would go out and that the church as the body of Christ would be the ones who carry that message and are the ones who proclaim Christ and yes, endure hardship in the midst of having to do that. So then the question I would want to leave you with this week because this is one of the things we're going to be kind of teasing out throughout the course of this study is how does this notion that these are what God's priorities are, these are what his purposes and plans are. And I don't, when I say the church, please understand, if you claim and profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, then these are God's plans and purposes for you individually as well, and collectively for us as a whole as the church. How does this either encourage and or challenge your thinking on the church and how God leads his people in the world? So, any thoughts, any ideas with, with respect to that answer, or that, not answer, that question? Why does then anyone become a Christian? It's a good question. We're going to talk about that as, as, a, as a part of this study. But if God had a plan from the fourth foundation of the world to, to establish the church, the Bible uses this language called the elect, or the chosen. And that as the church goes out, there are people that God is going to save. And so our confidence, let's say, in being witnesses to Christ and the gospel is not that we're persuasive. It's not that we, we've got the right answers. It's not that we've, we've figured anything out. Our confidence is in God, who has declared that when his people faithfully profess and proclaim him, that God will be at work to draw unto himself his elect. Now here's the kicker, right? We mentioned Paul, who, is, who starts off as a persecutor of the church. He's the guy that everyone would have been like, that dude's, you know, somebody should stone him. He's, he's useless. But if you read on, guess what happens to, guess what happens to Paul? Right? God saves him. He meets Jesus, right? And he ends up becoming the Apostle Paul, who goes out now and, and plants churches and writes scripture and God uses them in profound ways. This, if we're honest, doesn't sit comfortably. It doesn't sit comfortably. But again, which is God more concerned with? Your comfort? Or his glory? The advancement of his kingdom? And in that, your transformation and growth into, again, this is what God is doing. This is what we're going to unpack, right? 
This is what God is doing. This is who he is. These are his plans and purposes. And this is who we are made to be. And then once we understand that, then we can start talking about what we're supposed to do. The reason churches argue about what color the carpet's going to be, and they divide over, and they have church splits because there's an argument over, over chairs or pews or, or, or all this other silly nonsense, is because they've lost sight of these things, and they've made the church about them. They've never seen it to begin with. That's true, too. So I want to honor your time. We're already approaching... Uh, 10 o'clock here, so I'm going to pray, and I hope to see you again next week. I'm looking forward to kind of unpacking this stuff over the next eight weeks, and I would encourage you in light of that, if you have some time this week, go back, read through the book of Acts, and, and kind of read from Acts chapter 1 all the way to the end of, let's say, Acts chapter 8, and kind of see that story, that narrative, how it lays out, and how God is at work in that. I've got these handouts as well. Um, the scripture references and various other things are on there.